Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. Well, Nicole, today we get to talk shop. Yes, newsmen are in the building. And between Eric V. Tate Jr. and Stephen C. Miller, we mm-hmm. have a bunch of firsts in the newsrooms of ABC's Nightline, 2020, award-winning local news shops, and the New York Times. Right. Welcome, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be with you, Nicole. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Pleasure to be with you, Brian. Thank you. We just wanted to hang out because being of a certain age, we get to talk about being African-American in the newsroom and and what it means now as far as coverage versus, you know, back in the day. Let's get real here, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, everyone listening, Eric V. Tate and Stephen C. Miller, I can't say are retired. I know one of them likes to say he's retired, but um, I can tell you that um, Eric Tate is doing a show called Media Watch, and he is watching, and his panels discuss, you know, what's out there concerning African-American coverage. So what are you guys thinking about what's going on in the media today? Why don't we start there? Because we have a lot happening with black people um, getting good coverage, I think, in the media. And um, I know it's because you all were there behind the scenes that you paved the way. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on on how 2022 is uh, treating us. Anyone can start. Well, let me start. This is Stephen. Visually, we're doing a whole lot better because when Eric and I first started, black people were relegated to the weekends that was the only time you saw black people or women. They anchored on the weekends and that's the only time you saw them. Now we see black and brown people uh, doing all hours and doing prime time. And we've, you know, got one prime time host on NBC, you mm-hmm. know. So visually it's terrific. <laughs> but behind the scenes, it's still a little iffy. Mm-hmm. And my my feeling is when I started out as a reporter and as a producer, I spent most of my time as a producer, but I did a lot of reporting as well mm-hmm. uh, in all the mediums. Uh, but I used to have to do my research. I would go to the library. I'd read books. I'd spend a lot of time gathering background information. And I'm astounded at how little research people do mm-hmm. when you have Google. I can find out things now that used to take me three, four days of digging around a library, going through the stacks, hoping I'd stumble on the right book. And I can get a whole list of stuff now in about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why none of these people are doing that kind of research to put context to these stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, that covers all the news, but especially about black people. Mm. You know, I hear somebody make some comment. Famously, we're talking about Trump during uh, uh, talking about Frederick Douglass as if he was still alive. And like nobody in the room <laughs> would Eric, say, Eric's laughing. What? Nobody in the what? room. Well, well, maybe they, they had to do that silent um, shock <laughs> face. <Yeah. laughs> well, yeah, but no, but I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the people in the room, but these are during uh, the HBCUs, um, presidents all were down there, you know, trying to get some money, which I Oh, that's right. Understand why, this was in front of black did, people. Yeah. yeah. Why he didn't say mm-hmm. that. But, there, but when on the news, people didn't say, well, you know, Frederick Douglass has been dead for years. You know, I, right. to, to show you how long he's been dead, 
um, I'm in my 70s. And when I was a kid, the neighborhood park was Frederick Douglass Park. Okay. So I learned very early to spell it with an S, with the extra S. Mm. The list. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, so Eric? Look, we try to stay on top because we do the show called Media Watch, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. Nicole. But any of the studies that I have seen, um, quantitatively, numbers-wise, uh, people of color, especially Blacks and Black males, mm. have been declining in mainstream media since, I believe, the late 80s. Uh, and the new media, uh, forget the legacy media, new media, mm -hmm. when they do their hires, from what I've been able to tell, uh, I, I think Richard Prince and his journalism stuff tried to do a survey, mm -hmm. and they didn't even want to answer her survey. Oh. The mm. new media people basically did not want to respond because their numbers were so abysmal mm -hmm. that they just didn't feel like answering the survey. So Steve's correct in that behind the scenes, the people in decision-making power have not increased, but there are some rare exceptions because Nicole, you probably know this better than I do, being a black female in media. Mm -hmm. I think either MSNBC and or uh, one of the other cable the president of those networks is black female. Black females, yeah, they finally. One or two of them. Mm -hmm. And that definitely is a significant first mm -hmm. for anything that new media or old media, legacy or non-legacy. Uh, so, and I can't, I, I, I want to say somebody like Rashida Jones or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Oh, she is, she's, I don't want to go out on a limb, even though no. Media Watch should know that. I do believe <laughs> that's her name. It <laughs> is. You, we we used to uh, work. Rashida Jones, and she's president of MSNBC. Yeah, we used to work together yeah. in uh, Norfolk, believe it or not. She Did was working really? overnights okay. as a producer, and she okay. recently graduated from Hampton. And so it's amazing how, how far she has is. come. I mean, that was... <laughs> That was about 15 years ago. Anyway. <laughs> My point is, oh. the world is that small right. that this new president, here you are, totally connected. Mm -hmm. That's the way it was for us back in the day when Steve and I were in those network organizations. We yep. knew whoever the next guy next door, whoever the new lady that they hired, right. yeah. because there were so few of us. It has right. not changed. Well, I do have our, our favorite story, and Eric will, because uh, we've talked about this enough. At one point uh, during, uh, the, I guess, toward the late end of the Vietnam, but all the foreign story, stories, because the time difference were handled overnight. Mm -hmm. And at that point, all the, the people who ran the newsrooms that dealt with the foreign bureaus were all Black men. It was me at CBS, Eric was at ABC, and Bob Reed was at NBC. Mm -hmm. And so we set up all that news for the next day for the the melanin challenge people to come in and say, <laughs> well, here's the decisions we've made. <laughs> ah. We were running the overnight desks for all three networks. Yeah. And then a little bit later, at least two of us were running the international desk in the prime eight, seven to three, eight to four hours, mm -hmm. because right. I was running the ABC international desk, the foreign assignment desk. And I think it was what, Scotty Williston, Steve? Who Scotty, was oh, I forget, Scotty. Well, Scotty was on the foreign Scotty desk for CBS. Mm -hmm. Yes. And a I black forget, woman. And, yeah. uh, black male, it's ABC, black female at 
NBC, uh, CBS, Scotty. Right. Yeah. And Bob um, Reed at NBC. So when these decisions, of- oh, sorry, I was going to ask when these decisions from the overnight desks were made about foreign coverage and you present it to the bosses coming in in the morning to the morning meeting, what happens? Is it, did they take your word for it or was well, there no, a barrage well, of, <laughs> I don't believe yeah. you? <laughs> uh, the, the, because a lot of the stuff would be breaking in other news platforms, there was no such thing as, well, I don't think we can believe this. <laughs> because we'd already called our people or they'd called us and we said, okay, we'll let folks know that you're on that. And so keep us abreast of what you think you can get to whatever feed point, et cetera, mm-hmm. or shipping point, because back in the day, they weren't doing that much satelliting. Right. Mm-hmm. Because there was only one satellite anyway. I think it was ComSat. I got a yep. story about that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but in the daytime, you know, they would, of course, backstop our overnight stuff in the day on the day shift when you're running the foreign assignment desk like I did. If you walked into the morning meeting, then you would present exactly what had transpired overnight. You would say who's got what, where, and what does it look like for that evening's broadcast, or whether you're looking for that story the day after because of shipping and or whatever the logistics right. might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we both had that experience. But um, what I what used to uh, get to me is after the, when the overnight assignments had been made and all the foreign correspondents were out doing their stories and they were all so you'd make a list and then you would then they'd have a conference call with all the bureau chiefs and the vice presidents and all the and the producers of the major news shows, and I'd sit there in the morning and I'd read them a list of what's going on. And then I would just lean back in my chair while they spent the next hour hashing over all the stuff that we talked about. Everybody got their two cents worth in. <laughs> and what it boiled down to it at the end of it, they did exactly what I said we were doing <laughs> and what was going to be on the news that night. And I just like every night, I, 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 every morning I'd give my, you know, lead the conference call and then just sit there and listen to them going, well, uh, is it, can we get it to a satellite point in time? Uh, yeah. Uh, can we get it on a plane to get the film back here? Uh, it's over Jakarta right now. Trust me, you, you, you can't. Some of those conversations I had a, a, a weekend executive producer wanted to know whether he could charter a flight from Joburg to Cairo or vice versa to make the same night show. Oh. I said, uh, I, I think geographically that's not feasible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem why, the reason why he would think like that is because if you look at a map yeah. of Africa, the way they do it, it looks like just a hop, skip and a jump. They don't understand the size of that continent. It looks like and the state so, of Missouri, yeah. I, I had to disabuse him of that thought. No, that's not happening on the same day, okay? So think of another, another option. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we had to put up with because half of these people that as assignment editors we were trying to help cover the news for had no geopolitical sense no geographical sense mm, right at least half of them i would say steve am i exaggerating <laughs> no 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 you're not <laughs> we're, we're talking now let's get sort of the, the other racial issue about them not understanding geography and wh- mm-hmm. how big africa is mm-hmm. but during the um the, the war in Somalia, the first one, when the Janjuin were running around just massacring people mm-hmm. left, right, and center. 
And I made a proposal that we send, you know, a couple of correspondents or at least one correspondent and a producer over to cover this war. Mm-hmm. And they said, and one of the people in this room said, oh, Steve, it's just because you worry about Africans. Now, this man had an Irish last name and oh. we had four camera crews and two correspondents in Northern Ireland. Oh, mm-hmm. my. <laughs> look, look it, it's it's interesting because we can give you a like, <laughs> It's heartbreaking. Oh, it's heartbreaking, you know, to a but, point. But not even uh-huh. not even just Africa. I'll tell you, it's not some of it has to do with mm-hmm. that ratio of how many Americans are involved, et cetera, as mm, opposed right. to whatever, because their thing is, I forget what the rule of thumb was, but if there isn't at least 10 Americans involved in an overseas story back in the day, they didn't want to cover it. I don't know what it's like today. I didn't hear, but, I, I never heard that formula, Eric. Oh, <laughs> Steve. Oh, well, I, 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 didn't, I can't, I can't we, give you the ratio right now, because I got to no, tell you the story about- We about, used to have the, the, the rule of three. If three white people had heard about the story, then it was a story. <laughs> That's kind of like the rule of thumb of how many Americans overseas. But, yes. Well, a case in point back in uh, the, 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 the birth of Bangladesh. Uh-huh. Yeah. For three days, I had Ted Koppel sitting in Hong Kong. He was our Hong Kong bureau chief. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the drumbeat of this stuff coming out of Pakistan, but it was still Pakistan at the time. You had East Pakistan, West Pakistan. Right. Oh. Uh, and Sheikh Mujibir Rahman was just saying, no, you people have been treating us like stepchildren. We're not having any of this. We're tired, etc." And I could see it building mm. and I knew it was going to happen. And so I was on the four to midnight shift that time. And I said to my news manager, I'd write him a memo from the four to midnight. I'd say, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I might have been on the overnight, either 40 minutes or overnight. But anyway, I'm talking to Koppel. I'm reading this stuff. uh, And I said, look, this is going to happen. And when it happens, you're not going to get in because it's going to be a full scale revolution. You're going to have fighting in the streets. You're going to have gunfire. They're going to shut the airport. And first night, "Ah, no, 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 blah, blah, blah. Second night, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Third night, (laughs) (laughs) no. But between Koppel sending him and me haranguing him, he mm-hmm. moved Koppel. And so Koppel got in and then he was there filing all these great background reports. Yeah. And three days later, he said, what happened to this revolt? Yank him out. <laughs> Yank him. Yank him. Pull him out. <laughs> and I stalled for another three days. <laughs> and he was probably going to fire me. Because <laughs> you don't pull him out. Because I kept saying, oh, I forgot to send the telegram. I forgot to send the cable. Oh, no. <laughs> he said, if you don't pull him out. I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll pull him out. And sure enough, when I said I'd pull him out, it hit the fan. <laughs> and... He wasn't leaving because there was a big revolution going on and nobody else was getting in. And so oh, good. he thanked me. He thanked me. <laughs> he said, well, you got to be right once in a while. Oh, <laughs> they, oh. had a, they had a one week jump on the competition because Copper was in there. Good job. The interpretation me... was, this is going to be a revolution. Get in there before you can't get in there. But it was Pakistan, East Pakistan. There aren't any Americans yeah. over there. Why am I wasting my, my, my show budget, my whatever budget, you mm-hmm. know, those, those kinds of things. Just so uh, our audience understands, because a lot of people don't know the dynamics of a newsroom, especially on a national level, how can we explain it to the audience to say this is how it works in news? 
from your position, your standpoint, and how it disseminates from where you are or where you were. Steve, go ahead and break that down. Okay. Well, you know, in military terms, it's a chain of command. Right. So in a, in a news organization, you start with the vice president of news. Mm-hmm. He's the top dog. But he's essentially like the paper paper pusher. He's the administrator. Um, and in fact, for years, the head of CBS News was a lawyer hmm. and uh, had no news experience, but he got some and he became very famous. But he was a lawyer, but he was head of news. And then you go down to the executive producer level. These are the guys who run all the individual shows. Uh, so you'd have the morning news. You'd have uh, if there was a new news, even or if there was, and then you'd have the late news. You'd have Cronkite, um, Huntley Brinkley, and uh, mm-hmm. let's see who was there at that. I'm just trying to. Oh, ABC. It does, it, that, that, yeah, ABC. Triumvirate. That would have been Harry Reidner yeah. and. Um, uh, yes. Uh, uh, Howard K. Smith and Frank. Howard K. Smith. Yeah, Howard K. Smith and Frank Miller. Okay. So anyway, so then you'd go down to the executive producer, and then you'd go down to the line producer. This is the guy who, in modern terms, would be called the showrunner. Or girl. He's the one who would sit. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. (laughs) But but there were so few of those, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and none of us. Yeah. Yeah. Line producing. Line producers get paid well. Everybody. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then you'd have uh, field producers, right? And they would go out with the correspondents. But then you'd have the correspondents, the reporters, and the camera people. The reporters got all the credit because they were on screen, rightly known. Most of them were pretty good, uh, mm-hmm. but they couldn't do their jobs without a field producer mm-hmm. who did all the logistics, mm-hmm. set up the interviews, um, and uh, the camera and move the camera people around and told them what shots to get. And, so well, here, here, here's your nerve center. You have an assignment desk. That's yeah. the one. Yes. That's it. And the assignment desk is yeah. run by the news assignment manager and the director of news. Mm-hmm. And that news assignment manager staffs that desk with a four to midnight, a midnight to eight, mm-hmm. and an eight to four kind of round the clock so that you're covered. Right. And when stuff breaks globally or locally, nationally or in your backyard, that assignment desk is responsible for assessing whether that's worth network coverage. Mm. If it's just local, then the local affiliates gonna deal with it. If it's big enough, a network correspondent will get assigned by that assignment desk. They will call whoever's in the bullpen, whoever is nearest and dearest, or, or he might talk to his manager and say, who do you want to send on this? But we need to be there. Uh, it happens internationally as well. Mm-hmm. And so on those shifts, when these things are breaking, like Steve and I would go, who's in the bureau that's nearest that? We'd call that bureau person mm-hmm. and say, hey, actually, ABC had a Nairobi bureau. They had a Johannesburg bureau. They had a Cairo oh, wow. bureau. They had a Tel Aviv bureau. They had a Rome bureau. They used to cover international news Did. fairly well. Mm-hmm. And, and so I could say ditto, ditto for CBS. We yeah. would call all, all the networks had bureaus. And they would then tell us, uh, we've got a stringer down there that could shoot it for us. No reporter, but the stringer camera person would go cover that. I get pictures, yeah. And so then the, they would coordinate, the bureaus would coordinate with the assignment desk people and the coverage would then get ingested and then ship somewhere or 
taken to a satellite point and uh, but that's how it actually worked when we say we would say okay we got to go there and we got to go now or you're not getting in that's the assignment that's telling these right. people upstairs right. you better do that <laughs> Wow. Let's talk about breaking in. What were both of you um, separately? I guess, and then you could talk about when you got to know each other. Um, you know, I guess this, it was a whole, like the nerve center of black journalists existed, you know, to, to help sustain us. But let's go back. How did each of you break in? Eric, let's start with you first. Break into the business, because I know you had a busy life um, flying the friendly skies, but, uh, or the, the not-so-friendly skies in the military. Right, not-so-friendly. <laughs> I was actually in the U.S. Air Force as a navigator uh, and uh, in, in digging through some of the archival stuff so I could refresh my memory, I actually came across the letter of resignation that I wrote <laughs> to, to the Air Force because actually I had a regular commission, so I was supposed to be a, a career officer. Uh, and Oh, why did you get out early? I got out because it hit the fan at home because I was stationed in Japan and navigating aircraft in and out of Southeast Asia every month. Uh, but I was flying out of Tachikawa Air Base in Japan. Mm -hmm. What year was, was this, Eric? I got out in 69. So that would have been, I started there with my commission in 61, but I didn't get to Japan till about 64, 65. Wow, you were there a long military time. Military airlift, normal airlifts in the States before mm -hmm. I got shipped over to Japan. Mm -hmm. But that back end of the career was flying in and out of Southeast Asia. In like 68, it hit the fan at home mm -hmm. with all the revolts in all the major cities. Mm -hmm. And they would not want, if you're home on leave, you couldn't go you know, attend any demonstration in a uniform or anything. Oh. Uh, and if you're in, you couldn't be writing any op-ed things <laughs> with your rank. And, right. and I said, you know what? This is not working for me. <laughs> things, things are not happening right. You people have me in a lockdown. I said, okay, either transfer me to the diplomatic corps so I can mm -hmm. do something internationally and on that level where you're falling down without representation from people of color or let me go. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, we ain't going to transfer you. So you're going to have to resign. So I resigned. Uh, and in my resignations, uh, mm -hmm. I got to go because I don't think I'm cut out for this regimentation. And it's hitting the fan at home and you people don't seem to be have any plan to help make that better. I'm going to go try to make it better myself. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was my reason for resigning. And then I was interviewing with all three networks because this is 69 when I'm coming out and but, they don't did have, you have a news. Did you have a news background, Eric? No, I used to be a public relations officer. In addition to being navigator, I was a oh. squadron historian. I was a public information <laughs> officer. And I had some other hat. I wore three hats plus navigating into the war zone. You had so, an interest. Yes. <laughs> so I, I had the facility to write something if they needed a news writer. Yeah. So, so I was being interviewed by all three networks. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, mm -hmm. All of them had some kind of program to try to bring people of color in because it had hit the fan and didn't have anybody to go into our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So they were all searching and looking. And so oh, I ended up in a, quote, ad hoc training program at ABC News. More real news about the newsroom when we return. And we're back in the newsroom with Eric V. Tate and Stephen C. Miller. My father worked in factories all his life. Mm -hmm. But... 
he and my mother just had a passion for reading and and the and the written word. And um, we couldn't read the evening newspaper until my father got home because he got off at like three o'clock in the afternoon and he'd come home and the paper would be there and we couldn't read it because he had to read it first mm -hmm. and he wanted a fresh we, we, the thing was in the family he had to have a fresh, fresh paper. paper right fresh paper <laughs> untouched by anybody but the newsboy who delivered and it was newsboys okay <laughs> but <laughs> and uh but of course he came in and what he did is he took out the sports section and then handed the rest of the papers around anybody else who was there and so we'd all be sitting there reading the paper mm -hmm. and reading articles to each other and I just wow. couldn't understand why this man was so interested and passionate about this stuff in the news what was this all about mm -hmm. and so that's why I got interested in the news and I got interested in writing and reading mm -hmm. and uh, when I was in high school uh, I went to a very large high school in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. and they had a daily newspaper. But at that point, uh, even though the school was integrated, no black people could write for the paper. Hmm. And I got really frustrated because I wanted to write. Hmm. Yeah. I still had my interest in news. Uh, they didn't let me write for the uh, daily newspaper. When the yearbooks came out, they had students writing on their yearbook. I couldn't write on the yearbook either. Goodness. And so it just kept me very frustrated. And then after I graduated from high school, I was living in a converted garage that uh, this couple had and uh, was living back there. It was a great place, but they always wanted me to bring the rent over. This was a white couple mm -hmm. and I'd bring the rent over every month, but they would sit down and they wanted to talk to me because mm -hmm. this was the first time they'd had any black people renting that apartment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when I started talking about, talking about my interest in news, she said, well, you know, my cousin has something to do with the news. Maybe I can call him and you can go talk to him and he can tell you something about how to get in. And I go, okay. Well, it turns out her cousin was the general manager of the local television station <laughs> and <laughs> was like that. that's pretty big <laughs> was like yeah well, well we know that it was pretty big right but not only was he he was like one of the first tv general managers in all of indiana hmm. i mean he was considered mr broadcasting in hmm. indiana so i go in on his cousin's recommendation he talks to me he's very pleasant he's nice and then he said uh, let me hook you up with the station manager and see what we got going on around here she takes me around to, he takes me around to the station manager and says um this is a friend of mine steve miller he's looking for a job and he walked away <laughs> <laughs> That's so the guy stumbles around and then he goes well well the, the only thing i have open is as a stagehand and i go okay okay <laughs> and then once i got in the newsroom i'm like every other ambitious person who I just asked questions. I bugged everybody. I learned everything I could. Mm -hmm. And I moved up. I became an assistant director. And mm -hmm. then I started uh, helping out on documentaries the stations were doing. And one of them about Indiana history, we had a guy from California who was the producer <laughs> and knew nothing about Indiana history. So I wrote the script. Oh, <laughs> and he was he was kind enough to tell the news director that I had written the script. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I'm writing little news fillers for the for the newscast. And uh, then that's how I got into the business. I moved to New York and I got a job 
as a desk assistant, which is the lowest level in <laughs> that that newsroom hub that Eric was describing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is the grunt work. This is where everybody gets the real work done. Right. And this is the lowest level of that. This is the, you know, this is the kid who uh, runs for coffee and who picks up lunches and who uh, goes in and takes all the wire copy off the machine and distributes it around the news. You didn't even get so a chance my... to uh, rip scripts? Oh yeah, okay. uh, rip scripts, run, <laughs> run copy down to the teleprompter. Anything we needed to do, I, I did it. Yeah. Until as things go, I kept learning stuff and people would give me a chance and we, oh, we moved up from there. So that's how I got into business. And how high did you By move accidents. up? How high did you move up, Stephen? Oh, um, I, well, let's see, in, in the news business, I was assistant news director at uh, two stations. And uh, unfortunately, I never got to be a news director because at that time, there were two black news directors in the entire country. Oh. And I interviewed all over the place. And uh, I didn't get hired. <laughs> and then I got a job for a broadcasting magazine. Um, so I went off to do that. For a couple of years, then I got a job as a consultant to the Nigerian Television Authority. Oh yeah, I worked there I saw for a couple that. of years. Wait, wait, Steve, you, what? You you hit your ceiling at the network before you became those assistant news directors. That's that's a path you didn't talk about. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. oh yeah. Okay. I'll see. Okay. The, the top job when I was night news manager. That was my top job as an executive. Mm-hmm. And that was at CBS. Uh, so I ran the network. That was at CBS. Mm-hmm. I ran the I ran the newsroom at night from four to midnight. That was my job. Mm-hmm. Everybody had to come to me to get approval for anything. Great. So when I reached that level, the next job from that was either an assistant bureau manager in a big bureau or a bureau manager in a small bureau. Mm-hmm. And three jobs came up: uh, two assistant news directors, one in Chicago and one in Atlanta. And uh, I didn't get either one of them. Hmm. And I just finally went to the head of CBS News at that point and said, listen, what's going on here? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what's my future? He said, I don't know. There may be something down the road. Mm-hmm. So like Eric in the Air Force, I went out to my desk and I wrote my letter of resignation. Because <laughs> <laughs> clearly you weren't qualified. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> oh, they're, my they're gosh. All- we all run into these ceilings, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I gotta, yeah. I gotta ask, why is news often so white behind the scenes, and mm. what is it that is like a stronghold for people that are of no color? <laughs> you know, what what is this? Is this their last frontier, and they're gonna hold this ground forever and ever? And why is that? Why do we well, face they, so many challenges gonna... as African Americans in newsrooms and and information I... uh, locations, like even social it, media? It, it, Yep. It's, go, go ahead, Eric. I'll take the first stab at that, per se, because the newsrooms are the hardest to crack because mm-hmm. they are shining a light on everybody else. Oh, right. okay. I, I remember when you two guys might be too young for this, but Ted Koppel was interviewing Al Campanis on Nightline about why baseball was so, so, so segregated and blah, 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 blah. And Al Campanis in the middle of that interview said, Mr. Copper, your place is as bad as we are or worse. Oh, People forget that. If you go back and listen to that interview, you will hear Campanis lay it out. And Copper talked right over him because he wanted to still roast him for baseball. 
Right. And Panis was on the nose. Mm -hmm. And the problem with all these people in news and all these things, they don't shine a light on themselves. And when they do, you've got the entrenched, this is our fiefdom and we're not giving it up. Now, they'll tell you that it's, there's nothing racial about it, mm -hmm. but the bottom line is actions speak louder than words, and they have been protecting that. But it, the, the entire society is that way. The reason you see more inroads everywhere else mm -hmm. is because the news people shine a light on the other people and make them look bad. Oh, but to keep it off of them. Me, trust me, the society is the same across the board, oh, but yeah. the, People shining the light don't turn it inward. And so it changes less frequently than the rest of the society. That's my take on that. Steve, you got another well, take? I, no, no, I, I, but I think it's, it's, it's uh, society-wide because we were inside. It was particularly glaring to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, like here I am, the youngest executive, I mean, the lowest rung executive at CBS News, the only black, and... Uh, these guys all hung out with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they'd say right in front of me, hey, uh, who's going to the ball? Who else wants to go to the ball game tonight? And they would look right over me as mm -hmm. if I didn't exist. They mm. all played tennis together. Mm. Nobody ever invited me to play tennis. In the era of uh, Cronkite, when uh, he was there, he used to take favorite producers and correspondents and other people he liked out on his boat. Mm. Out of, oh. in, uh, in Narragansett Bay. Mm -hmm. And I never got invited. You never went on the boat. <laughs> I never went on the boat. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a cordial relationship with the man. I liked him and he treated me well, but he didn't invite me to play tennis with him. He right. didn't invite me on his boat. On the boat. <laughs> uh, didn't invite me on the boat. Well, not that I'm at that point being an African-American, I was afraid of boats. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> See, I love boats, but you well, know what? I, I'm I do too. That was a, a cheap, cheap joke. But what I'm thinking, though, guys, I so I grew up in newsrooms. I was um, in newsrooms for 30 years, and I remember a couple of times, way early in my career, people said, "Oh, Nicole, I didn't think you'd like that." Uh, yeah. Yes. There you go. I'm wondering if that was looming mm -hmm. in the background. Mm -hmm. And and you know what I experienced because I was working in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, just recently, a couple years ago. Uh, so many young people, I think, have lost the connection, or we lost the connection to young people. And I'd have to do those MOSs, those uh, you know, man on the streets, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and trying to make a story out of these, you, you know, some of these topics. And so many young people, because this is a college town, Columbia, South Carolina, mm -hmm. college city, and they say, I don't even watch the news. I don't, I don't pay attention to the news. I mean, these are 20-something-year-olds. These are college students, and they mm -hmm. are not connected in any way to what we have, you know, what you all have pioneered in the news, and they don't even watch. So I'm wondering, how do we regain that um, uh, connection, especially with young people? Or even interest. Or, or an interest, or how do we, uh, have we lost something? Because, you know, you think about, you know, this is history that we're talking about, but with you two men, um, but a lot of young I people mean, don't don't attach themselves at all to news and information like you would think. But um, who's talking to them about history? Right, that's the problem. Yeah, our parents talked to us about history. Mm -hmm. We had publications geared to us. 
I mean, um, you know, when I grew up, you, you Ebony and Jet and uh, mm -hmm. the Chicago Defender and uh, Pittsburgh Courier and uh, in Indianapolis, we had the Indianapolis Recorder. These were all black publications. St. Louis American. Yes. Say, okay, I'm, I'm just saying that everywhere yeah. you went, there was a black newspaper. Yeah. Right. And all of that's gone. I, I'm, you know, go ahead, Derek. I'm not sure whether it's the proliferation of so much media, mm -hmm. so many platforms, so much stuff that these young people are inundated with. I mean, between TikTok, Instagram, you, I, I can't even keep up with how many different <laughs> right. Right. There's a lot sources. of options. You know? right. uh, and so mm -hmm. you've got these six second videos that come and erase themselves instantly. I'm not sure the total global society mm -hmm. is geared for any in-depth looking at and absorbing, mm -hmm. uh, which I believe I don't know if you can point a finger at any one thing or any one individual. It's just the fact that the society has sped up so much mm -hmm. over time. I, 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 I may be rambling, but I can't actually fault. The newspapers are trying their best to still do journalism, but nobody wants to buy a newspaper. And just a quick headline, Eric, on Then I'll Be Free to Travel Home, a must-see documentary. Oh, oh, yeah. The, the video version was a two-part version. And I'm happy to say one of my heroes from my childhood became our on-camera anchor person for that documentary, the great Lena Horne. Oh, yeah. And I believe wow. she was, that may have been the last on-camera work she did. Amazing. Hmm. And, yeah, and you covered that. the African burial ground in New York. You unearthed it. Mm -hmm. and, but I have to add a little footnote to that mm -hmm. because I think I was working at WCBS at the time when they first uncovered the burial ground. Mm -hmm. And I fought for a week and a half for us to go cover the story. And that's, I, Eric, I think that's when we met. Oh, oh it was, it was before. Nicole? Because it was in my, that's when I met, I, Eric. When, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I that's when Nicole and I met. When, yeah. when I was, yeah. yeah. Did they ever agree to cover it? Yeah. Yeah, we finally went after and, fighting and for a week and a half. Do you remember? You remember Lucille Rich? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. One of the pioneer black women on local broadcast. Uh, I was her producer, and I fought, and we finally went down and were able to do a story. One of the mm -hmm. greatest ar archaeological finds in New York, I would have to say. In in the globe, in the, <laughs> the twentieth <globe>. century. <laughs> how many? Oh. How many bodies, Eric? Was it? They. Estimate anywhere from ten to 20,000 bodies over a span of time were buried in that burial ground. They unearthed a little over 400, I think 415, between 409, 415. Then they did the return and reburial. I think hmm. 415 caskets were, were reburied oh at the site. Still so powerful. Yeah, that was, was one, a... of my, one of my um, early independent documentaries um yes so yeah if we're feet. not satisfied mm -hmm. in the newsroom we move into long form usually yes, as independents. 
if you hit that ceiling, then you got to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there is so much, what's the word, turmoil, discombobulation, whatever, mm-hmm. in not just news broadcasting, but in broadcasting in media, period, that a young person now, my advice would be get an internship somewhere. Hmm. They will pay you to learn something, even though they won't pay you a giant salary. But you will learn something from professionals. You'll be in an expert environment and then read as widely as you can and then figure out how to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. Be gutsy and have a thick skin and be determined because it ain't going to be easy. (laughs) This is like time honored um, advice. This is the same way it was 50 years ago. (laughs) Right. We, of course, have too much to put in one episode. Yeah, we do. Uh, We're going to do a, I think we should do a two-part. Two-part. It feels like it. I mean, we might, we might. We'll let you guys know. We were all the spooks who sat by the door. We were the spooks. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So that's the way it was from the people who brought you your nightly news, everyone. Enlightening for sure, right, Bryant? Yes, definitely. Love those inside stories. Now, for more stories like these, you have to visit our website at BeforeYouGo.tv. That's BeforeYouGo.tv. And thank you all for listening to us here on KBLA Talk 1580. And before we go... We want to remind everyone that these stories are what make a show like ours possible. So make sure you take the time to reach out to those who paved the way for all of us. There's no time like the present. What a gift. What a gift. gift.